This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Hannah Fern. Listeners, if I was to ask you how much time you spend on Twitter today, would you be embarrassed to tell me the truth? Was it one hour of doom scrolling? Three hours? Five? Maybe that's just me. Of course, social media is addictive. That much is very obvious, but there's more to it than that. It hooks us in because it ignites our most basic emotions. And when it comes to politics, that means anger. The writer and researcher Tobias Rose Stockwell has been tracking the link between political rage and our global social media habit. And his findings form the basis of a new book. Outrage Machine, How Tech Amplifies Discontent and Disrupts Democracy, and What We Can Do About It. And he joins me now. Hi, Tobias. Hi, Anna. So I'm sure I'm not the only one who has looked at the clock and wondered how on earth I lost another hour down the rabbit hole. Why do we latch on to the things we see online that make us so furious? Yeah, I think the primary explanation comes down to emotional contagion. We have a tremendous propensity to uh, look to others when we're trying to figure out what to feel about particular topics. And social media does a really good job at serving us things that, uh, that make us angry. Um, and when we are angry and we are triggered by what we see online, uh, we often share that onwards. Um, and the machinery and the design of social media is, is built in such a way that these emotions propagate outward <laughs> on the network and give us all further triggers. How does that change how we then behave? So we forward these things on, we share them more widely, but, but how about our response as well? What, how does our behaviour uh, switch when we see these kind of uh, expressions of anger? I think it comes down to a level of threats, right? If we perceive a lot of threats in the wider world, which social media is very good at kind of giving us a whole new slew of potential threats, um, then it forces us to kind of shut down, <laughs> put ourselves into a bunker, if you will, uh, with <laughs> our individual identity groups. Uh, we look to, to find safety in the communities that we hold dear, and we look to reinforce the ideals that uh, we see threatened, um, which I think you can see all the time with uh, various declarations of identity and various declarations of anger uh, that propagate uh, along these networks. That sounds like a very evolutionary thing, this idea of safety and like protecting ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we come from evolutionary history of wandering around in small tribes. Uh, uh, this in-group, out-group behavior is very much a part of what we see on social media. So is there one example of how this outrage machine, as you call it, operates? And what were the ramifications of that for, for people sharing online? Sure. Uh, I can use an example that is maybe a little bit less political because most of these moments of context collapse and <laughs> outrageification become uh, extremely political very quickly uh, by design. But a few years back, I'm sure you remember this, uh, there was a dress that was very popular on the internet. Blue and black uh, or white and gold. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think that this dress does a great job of, of explaining just how uh, information goes viral online. Um, you know, that was a meme that, uh, that was what you could call bi-stable. Um, you look at it and depending on the way your brain is wired, <laughs> you see it as either 
blue and black or white and gold. Uh, and you cannot see it a different way, right? You literally, your brain cannot see a different way unless you squint, unless you stare, unless you, unless you expend tremendous effort. And like a light switch, our brains automatically, you know, fall into one of these two states of seeing that. And that's what a lot of these issues online that we see lacking context um, end up being, right? They end up being kind of this strange illusion, optical illusion, in which uh, the way that it's presented, a political issue, for instance, becomes exceptionally um, certain, right? It's certain, mm-hmm. but it's also ambiguous. And those those particular type of uh, issues tend to go extremely viral because we share them on where we're like, no, this is, of course, this is, of course, the way it is. Um, and other, and another someone else says, no, of course, is, is the exact opposite way, right? And that's that's something that that social media is very good at. It's it's very good at uh, leveling up these particular controversies that are um, extremely certain, but also inherently ambiguous. And people um, did get very angry with the other side, even absolutely. on such a, a meaningless, pointless thing as what color dress is. Obviously, absolutely. when you're talking about uh, immigration or how tax revenue is spent, that that those are issues where the consequences actually matter. Whereas right. address does not matter, and right. yet everybody Thankfully. still, <laughs> right, yeah. and, and yet still people were so emotionally engaged with that. That's true. Yeah, that's right. And I, th- I think it's helpful for uh, for your audience to potentially identify these items when you see them online. Um, again, they're 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 bi-stable items, and that they just they sit in one of two states in people's brains. And I, I think a good a good word for this is uh, what the writer Scott Alexander calls scissor statements, mm-hmm. things that cut uh, plainly cut an audience into two pieces. So they divide society automatically, essentially. So I think that's important to be able to recognize those as individuals. It was white and gold. Of course it was. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so I guess we, if we respond with emotion in that way to social media rather than the rational part of our brain, that's understandable. But can't the same thing be said of traditional news? I, I'm, I'm a journalist. I've worked in newsrooms for two decades. And that classic phrase, if it bleeds, it leads, sort of comes from that, that we know there's an emotional response to anything that suggests threat or you know fear. So what's new now? Why is social media different uh, in, in playing with our emotions in that way? So I, I spent a huge amount of time uh, in researching this book and writing it, focusing on traditional journalism as well, because social media is not working with different materials. It's working with the same materials, right? It's working with the same basic human emotions, the same kind of fundamental impulses and reactions. It's just gotten that much better at extracting our attention. You can kind of blur your eyes and, and look at a, a social media company a bit like a, an old school newspaper. You know, the, the editor at the newspaper is the algorithm now today that's serving you uh, <laughs> what you want to see. Um, and the contributors, which used to be journalists um, or opinion writers, are now everyone. It's now all of us. The algorithm is just much, much, much better at determining exactly what you will respond to. And uh, it turns out we respond really strongly to, uh, to threats. And rage. <laughs> Other and rage. rage, yeah, absolutely. So how does this translate in sort of a real meaningful way to our lives? So let's take politics, which is obviously so significant that the impact this has on our democracy. How much of what we see on social media has an impact on how we form our own political identities and how we vote and so on? Yeah, it has quite a tremendous amount of uh, influence on on how we see the world, how we treat our neighbors, how we treat strangers, um, you know, particularly. I think that one of the primary issues of social media is that it kind of, it becomes difficult to determine, and this is a problem with traditional news too, but it becomes difficult to determine what is a real 
panic, like a, a real pa- like something we should be panicked about versus a moral mm. panic. Um, and social media is, is very much a place for no context, right? You are, or to, for context collapse, right? You, you don't find... Or very limited context. They're just very limited space. Context, right? Yeah. But by, by design, right? You have character limitations. You have mm. the desire of social media companies to keep you on there as long as possible and, and not get you lost in, you know, the... Uh, the details of a particular art, argument or debate or problem that uh, sure. people are focusing on. They want you to kind of keep scrolling and to keep you scrolling uh, emotionally violenced content and more content is better. You point out in your book that keywords are really important uh, in the functioning of these social media uh, sites in that the algorithm recognizes certain keywords that, that really attract uh, those kind of rage inducing posts. What kind of keywords are we talking about here? This is a strange thing because this wasn't explicitly coded into uh, any of our engagement algorithms, but uh, it turns out that moral and emotional language, so for every moral and emotional word that you use on social media, you're likely to get a 17% boost to virality. This is a study by William Brady at NYU uh, and J- with Jay Van Bavel and Molly Crockett. What, what kind of words are those, just for our listeners? What, what? So shame, uh, shame, anger, disgust. Um, I am, you know, I am disgusted with this person for doing this. This is shameful, that kind of thing. So stuff that yeah. is morally condemning of others uh, tends to get a 17% boost per word used. Uh, so if you think about that, uh, like an inherent kind of shift in the type of content that, we, w- that we're, we're producing on a regular basis, right? So in that process... Uh, all of a sudden, I get more signal as the uh, as the producer <laughs> because yeah. that that post goes more viral, right? So I'm like, oh, okay, wow, this is something that's important. The world is asking more of this kind of content from me. I should continue to kind of reinforce this process of sharing angry and morally outraged stuff. And uh, in that way, social media does actually kind of train us to uh, to create and produce more of this outrage content. And do you think that the the logical sort of extension of that is that it makes us become more angry and outraged? That we we're not just creating this stuff for engagement; it's actually how we feel. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you think that this is this has tilted the entirety of our social perception of the world towards a level of anger and threatening narratives? Those of us who do live in nominal democracies, can we really be said to be free voters when we are subject to this level of emotional manipulation, as you've just described? Is, is this sort of a form of election rigging, really? I mean, look, it, it's it, it's difficult to say what is manipulation and what is kind of willful uh, or willing influence, right? We, you know, what, and this is this kind of difficult philosophical question that's being posed by our integration with these tools and how much time we spend on them, right? They're, they're clearly influence devices, right? Uh, one of the first studies uh, Facebook showed in 2014 that, uh, that emotional contagion was a feature of the platform uh, and then they could, you know, change the dials and the buttons and make mm-hmm. us feel certain ways. Uh, but we still use these platforms. We still choose to, to engage with them. And, you know, just as we we're saying before, it's like the news is also its own strange kind of manipulation of us as well. So it does raise some very interesting philosophical questions about our ability to engage with democracies and with our democracies in a meaningful way that doesn't include the kind of influence that we wouldn't want, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, We are both in the UK and in the US heading into a period where there's a significant election buildup, really important decisions to be made in our democracies in the next couple of years. How do you think that social media has changed that pre-election process? 
it certainly has made politicians more likely to try to appeal to their bases, right? I think that, you know, these same dynamics of trying to amplify specific moral and emotional keywords can be, uh, can be found for politicians as well, right? And trying to appeal to their bases, trying to get a viral hit. If you, in the United States, at least, one of the primary ways a politician will try to get ahead in a primary is to make an extreme viral video that appeals mm-hmm. their base and or do some you know, extreme stunts on social media that get them that viral attention. And you know, if, if that is something that makes a whole bunch of people angry, um, that's more likely to actually get this compounding effect of, of increasing attention on it. And that's that's a problem. That's a real problem because we're not actually talking about debates. We're talking, you know, we're talking not talking about the issues at hand uh, in a meaningful way. We're actually just talking about what is most likely to get people angry. You've described the keywords and the the moral uh, words that that create this um, snowballing effect. Weren't built into the algorithms of social media sites. It's simply a a phenomenon that's been observed as they've developed. So how is money made through our outrage? Is it as simple as more clicks equals ad revenue? What's in it for the social media companies to be sort of allowing this constant spiralling of of emotional contagion? Yeah, it comes down to ad revenue. (laughs) Unfortunately, I wish there was a more complex (laughs) uh, set of incentives there. But no, engagement equals ad revenue. And this type of borderline content tends to be uh, engagement gold for them. Ad revenue is still a a big part of it, especially for these smaller uh, internet sites that use social media to, you know, package an article about people angry on Twitter about X, uh, (laughs) you know, or make clickbait out of some tiny online outrage. It's certainly a cyclical process. I mean, you must have spent a lot of time online researching this book. Do you regret how much time you've spent on Twitter? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There is, a, I think, an important angle to recognize, which is that people don't feel super great after spending a lot of time on these platforms when it is entirely full of you know, outrage-inducing content and um, kind of toxic discourse. They just there's this there's this kind of second-order emotion called regret <laughs> that we do fortunately feel. Uh, but most social media platforms have this pretty substantial uh, uh, quantity of users that a majority of users that don't like using the platforms. They just keep coming back on a regular basis. Uh, so that's slightly hopeful in a way that you know there's uh, <laughs> some kind of regret function that I think is helping people. Uh, move away from them, but it's it's a it's a problem for sure. It's a, it's a bit of a conundrum because it's for some of us certainly it's not as easy as just logging off. I mean, many of us need it for work. We have professional identities online. And it's not just journalism and media like my area, but all kinds of disciplines. That kind of public profile for your work is is an important part of uh, a career now. Definitely. Um, so, what can we actually do to change our relationship with social media? Given that. Yeah, so I put solutions into basically kind of three different buckets. And it's important to recognize that this isn't just one thing, right? Social media constitutes a whole kind of galaxy of new apps and tools and incentives and design tweaks that that all have their own independent actions and reactions uh, to to us and to society at large. So I think it is really important to get kind of as specific as possible. Like if we're talking about the mis- and disinformation problem, I think that is a very, very, very pernicious and dangerous problem that I think can really be fixed. Like we actually know a lot about what bad information looks like online. And what I mean by that is uh, generally untrue information. We know it has a pattern. We know it has a kind of a fingerprint online. And so we can start to deprioritize that. And I think that's critically important. Um, and those can be, I think, fixed with better weights and measures. Is it partly our responsibility, though, to get our sort of minds and lives back? We have to 
provide that context ourselves. So it requires a bit of fact checking and so on. It does. There are, <laughs> we're getting better at this. You know, we're starting to see uh, kind of cultural antibodies emerge <laughs> a little bit when it comes to it. So you can't really believe what you see on Twitter. You can't really believe what you see on Facebook, that kind of thing. Uh, so I do think that we're getting better at it. Um, and yeah, it is to some degree on us, but I think it's it's really important to recognize that most of the power in solving these problems lie lie with the platforms themselves. And I guess they'll start doing that when we start asking for it. That's right. Yeah, agreed. Thanks so much for joining me, Tobias. Thanks for having me. Outrage Machine by Tobias Rose Stockwell is published by Little Brown this month. And if you enjoyed this episode and you like what we do at The Bunker, then please consider backing us on Patreon. Sign up as a supporter and you'll get the show without ads, plus a load of other extra benefits too. I'm Hannah Fern. Thank you for listening. Bunker was presented by Hannah Fern. Audio production was by me, Robin Lieber. The producer was Chris Jones. Art by James Parrott. And our music was by Kenny Dickinson. Managing editor, Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. And The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Listener.